the recording. Okay, um, now this week, uh, we are going to talk about the superpower, the United States. This is a very, um, yeah, very important topic. We know the United States has been uh, the most important uh, and a powerful country, if you like, uh, in the world in the last um, 70 odd years or so. And it is hard to do justice uh, within about 50 minutes to examine um, the United States as a complex country. Um, but yeah, we'll try. Can you can you see the moving of the uh, slider? The slide? Uh, no, it's still can't. on the first one. Oh, okay. Um, let me reshare it again. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, maybe this one. Can you see the second slide? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, a quick reminder of the, uh, the importance to uh, contribute to the seminars and uh, online discussion, uh, which is for cloud students. Um, as, you, as you know, uh, the uh, second assignment, uh, component one, it's basically about your actual contribution to the seminars and to uh, online discussion or the, the online discussion uh, that um, makes up 25% of your total mark in this unit. So it's one quarter of your uh, overall mark. Uh, and if you uh, haven't uh, attended the seminars or haven't contributed to the uh, Cloud Deacon online discussion. Uh, I uh, urge you to to do so because uh, in the end um, that's, um, that will be reflected in how well you will respond to your um, the part one of the second assignment. Uh, so um, if you have any um, issues, uh, particular personal situation, please uh, let us know. We can help, we can understand, but in the end, uh, I think uh, we cannot help you improve your uh, score. Uh, so uh, that's basically self-help. Um, so I hope you uh, keep this in mind. All right, let's move on to the um, a quick question. What do Obama, um, Biden and Trump have in common? These three, yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say that they were all US presidents at one point. <laughs> That's a great answer. Yes, they are all male as well. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, probably the question should be phrased. Uh, framed uh, more specifically. What do they have in common in terms of their beliefs? 
uh, that America um, comes first and is uh, greatest above all? Yeah. Uh, I've forgotten the slogan. I can't believe I just had it in my mind. Make America great again. Yeah, is that's that the right. one. Yeah, that's the yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. You see, yeah, our memory is dependent on on the media. Uh, once <laughs> once uh, they are out of the mind of the media, yeah, they can be forgotten. Um, yeah, you're right. I think although they they come from different uh, political parties. Um, they they have very different personalities. Uh, they are so yeah they are different in so many ways. But I think it's important to note that they all share the same um, belief that the United States should be number one. So for example, for Obama, the United States will not settle for second place which is a clumsier way of saying America first, actually. So Donald Trump actually uh, summed up this uh, belief really uh, concisely. And look at Biden, what Biden said uh, earlier this year, China won't surpass the United States as the most powerful country in the world on his watch. So you wonder where this kind of belief comes from. Well, that has a much longer history. Uh, but before that, I think, given that we are now uh, in the middle of the Olympics, uh, I will give you some uh, Olympic uh, trait. Uh, this is the medal count from the New York Times. Can you see the the interesting part? Slides aren't moving again, Jen. Oh, sorry. Um, what's the problem? Because I am using two uh, monitors. I'm not sure what's the issue here. Um, I have seen a um a lot of U.S. media outlets on talking about the Olympic Games and downplaying um, how important gold medals are because China's yeah. getting a lot more than the US. I found that very funny. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the way I'm going to talk about this. And uh, this seems to be just a sport, but actually sport is politics. Um, so now, can you see it's moving now? No, it's not moving. No? No. That's really strange. I haven't had this kind of problem in previous trimesters. Um, maybe this screen. Can you see the movie now? Um, not really. Mm. Oh, now it's moving. Oh, it's moving, okay. It's moving on a timer. Timer? Oh. Um, okay. I'll see. 
Can, can you see the, uh, the metal count? Yes, we can. Okay. Yes. So this is a screenshot from New York Times uh, Twitter feed. Uh, can you see the, uh, the thing that is notable? Yeah, they're going by overall medal tally and not by gold medals. Yeah, yeah. Which is the Olympic um, way of counting it, I guess. Yeah, that's, uh, that's changed, I think, after the Beijing Olympics. I so, saw yeah. a similar one, Cheng, out of um, Great Britain, where they've yeah. changed it to be medals won in different events, and then that way they're coming first. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, uh, this... Uh, when when the overall medal count uh, equals, um, you can see, yeah, this is also yeah from uh, U.S. Media Network. You can see the United States still on top. Um, then there is this one. Um, if one gold medal is worth the same as um, two point six silver, and one silver is worth two point four bronze. United States ranks first. So they have this kind of a weighting system to somehow calculate to make uh, the United States uh, stay on top. Well, there's also this uh, New York um, feature story about China's um, sports. Uh, it's called Chinese Sports Machine. Um, Turning out Olympic gold medals, uh, yeah, basically to to say why China seems to be succeed, uh, succeeding. Um, then you have this: Olympic gold medals no longer uh, show off nation's cultural power. That's good. So you may think that yeah, this is just the petty uh, or manner. Um, said stories about the Olympics, about sports, but I think it does reflect a certain kind of beliefs about why the United States need to stay on top, need to be number one, need to be first uh, in almost every area. Uh, if it doesn't, then there will be new rules, new norms, or new um, procedures to to help keep it that way. Um, and I think um, this kind of go, goes back to, go back to the Americans' way of thinking about themselves, uh, how the United States uh, perceive its self-identity, and in turn, this kind of identities uh, can inform foreign policy. Now, we'll briefly yeah, look at uh, four different foreign policy traditions. Uh, the first tradition is the Jeffersonian tradition uh, that's um, named after US President uh, Thomas Jefferson. He seems to be an uh, isolationist. As you can see, he wanted to keep the United States um, a democracy, um, alive and well at home, but avoiding foreign entanglements. So basically it's similar to the um, 
doctrine adopted by the first, uh, the inaugural U.S. President uh, George Washington, avoid getting involved in the affairs of Europe. Another American president, Andrew Jackson. So Jacksonian foreign policy tradition, uh, as you can see, is very much um, focused on ensuring the United States uh, security and prosperity. So it's quite a nationalist um, and also realist uh, because it has the belief in uh, useful force. So some say Donald Trump uh, probably is uh, closest to the uh, Jacksonian tradition. Um, he had um, this uh, Jackson's portrait in his White, uh, White House office. And uh, Alexander Hamilton, he uh, this this this, um, this show um, about Hamilton. Uh, you might have seen it. Uh, the Hamiltonian tradition uh, is focused on this kind of uh, U.S. enterprise. Uh, it's business. It's cooperation interests. So he more like this kind of uh, today's new liberal um, uh, promoter. So he's very much in favor of liberalization and the um, interdependence of the global economy. Um, so he seems to be uh, well ahead of his time uh, as uh, the first uh, treasurer, um, the secretary of US Treasury. Now, the fourth one is named also after um, a U.S. president, Woodrow Wilson. The Wilsonian uh, tradition is that the United States' interests lies not just in its um, uh, business or its own security as such, but more importantly, like its uh, universal values. So he believes that the United States represent uh, the universal um, ideals of the whole world. And in order for the United States to be secure, uh, to be prosperous, the world has to be made safe for democracy. So again, you may have heard of that slogan. And as a consequence, uh, his foreign policy would um, involve the democratization um, in other countries. So this is a, some say this is a more of this kind of idealistic uh, tradition. Now, of course, this is not the only way of naming or categorizing those uh, American foreign policy traditions. There are different names, uh, different categories, but uh, if you look at the substance, they are uh, similar. Uh, for example, the new isolationism seems to be uh, more or less in line with the um, Jeffersonian tradition and the selective engagement probably is uh, closer to the Jacksonian tradition, etc. 
So I will not go into the details. There's so much to absorb on this slide. Um, but yeah, please have a look to see uh, whether you recognize uh, any um, recent U.S. foreign policy um, and and any uh, also any politicians in the United States who might be representing which tradition. Okay, um, we mentioned the United States uh, desire to be the number one in the world uh, in almost every aspect. Now, I think this uh, this kind of firm belief in that uh, U.S. exceptionalism uh, can be summed up in the strong belief in the uniqueness of American virtue. So the United States uh, is not just any great power. It is uh, a very uh, benevolent, uh, virtuous power in the world. And this might be the only such great power in the world. That uh, came from this um, founding uh, mythology of the creation of the so-called new world in North America versus initially the other, which is the old world of Europe. So as a result of that, um, there has been this strong sense of American exceptionalism. The United States is different from the rest of the world. Um, the, um, for example, the, the Protestant uh, bishop um, talked about the United States as a city upon a hill. So it stands tall and can see further than any other nations. Um, they use this um, phrase, this kind of uh, the promised land, um, the chosen people, the United States uh, has this special covenant uh, with God uh, to um, save the world. Uh, it has this manifest uh, destiny um, that to that is to lead the world. Um, and also, if you have studied American history, uh, this term, the frontier, uh, occupies a strong place in this kind of American uh, historical self-imagination. The frontier, initially, there was the frontier war uh, between the settlers and uh, Native Indians. And a lot of movies, um, the Western genre, uh, were made uh, out of that kind of uh, historical encounters to show the American uh, free spirit, um, its adventurism, uh, uh, etc. So uh, that uh, kind of Hollywood, Hollywood um, genre uh, and a, a whole raft of other soft power resources that have lured uh, so many people around the world to the United States to um, to see, uh, to realize the American dream. And um, not surprisingly, uh, I myself have been also lured to, to, the ho to Hollywood, uh, to, to Universal Studio, as you can see uh, from this uh, photo. Um, 
so such is the power of U.S. attraction, if you like, uh, soft power. And there is also this strong belief in the um, persistence of the United, uh, of the American history. That's a term coined um, by uh, Henry Luce um, in the 1940s to think that uh, this the 20th, 20th century will be the American century. And of course, uh, before uh, the Iraq war, there was this um, organization called the Project for a New American Century, uh, led by new conservative commentators and policymakers, which um, led to the invasion of the Iraq war. So the reason why the United States could do all those things um, have been underpinned by this strong self-evidence, this um, strong conf confidence in, uh, in its own virtue, in its own um, righteousness. And so to give you some examples, um, these are the very memorable um, sentences, phrases, and lines are about American uh, uniqueness or exceptionalism. So the first one, uh, American principles were the principle, principles of limit, uh, liberated mankind. Who says this? Do you recognize the, uh, the photo? It's um, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, next, America has the ability to begin the world anew. Who is, who is this? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, yeah. The U.S. is the last best hope of Earth. Lincoln? Lincoln, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I took the easiest one. <laughs> and we are by destiny rather than choice, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. JFK. JFK, yes. And this one, uh, the US is the indispensable nation. We stand tall and hence see further than other nations. Is that Madeleine Albright? Yes, the Sec Secretary of State and uh, Bill Clinton. Now, uh, I think, yeah, uh, you can see the, um, this kind of the same thread running through all these, those quotes. Um, we often, say Scott Morrison is the, the Scott for marketing. I think these American leaders are the greatest marketing um, executives in the world. Uh, they have come up with those kind of really um, inspiring, um, memorable uh, slogans and catchphrases for us to believe in the U.S. Um, Indis indispensability. It's as if other nations are dispensable and they have the destiny to lead and they are the last best hope on earth, etc. So um, the last one, Americans see history as a straight line and themselves standing at the cutting edge of it as representatives for all mankind. 
So that's basically the end of history argument uh, we mentioned uh, earlier. So this is all, uh, it's not coincidental. Uh, this really ran through the American self-identity. Um, I think um, this is something that we, we need to understand because otherwise uh, a lot of things do not make sense uh, without understanding the way how the United States understands itself. However, the, the very strong um, publicity of American virtue uh, masks the, uh, another kind of reality we rarely hear about uh, during the rise of the United States. On the left, the, the four maps shows the, show the, um, the land that has been gradually um, stolen, if you like, from the uh, American Indians uh, by white settlers. So the first one from 1776, uh, that, that was the year the United States was founded. Um, so originally there was these uh, 13 colonies, which were also uh, not, um, uh, I guess uh, it was also colonized um, from native Indians, but um, put that aside, uh, all the rest in red color belonged to native Indians, about 500 different nations of uh, Indian people or native Indian people. And then um, about um, 70 years later, you can see, um, it's reduced to about half. And then by the end of the 19th century, they were basically reduced to those so-called reserves for the native Indians. And um, the last one is basically uh, the, the map um, that reflects the current um, situation. Uh, so the status quo nation, um, has not always been uh, in favor of the status quo, uh, if you like. Uh, the United States uh, struck about 500 treaties with native Indian tribes and sovereign nations. All those treaties have been either violated or broken by the United States. And so this has left this, uh, the trail of tears uh, for the Indians, and if you are not very familiar with uh, this um, period of history, uh, you can uh, have a look, you can search it out. And of course, with this um, expansion of the US colonial settlement, so the endless frontier pushing westward, and first they are from the east coast um, of the United States, then to west coast, and then to the Pacific, to uh, Hawaii, to Guam, to the Philippines. So that's another story. Uh, so as a result, this uh, has enabled the United States to increase its power. It, the United States has not 
always been the number one country in the world, uh, as we obviously know. It has been helped by World War One and World War Two. Um, the two world wars basically uh, spared the United States, um, except uh, World War Two, of course, uh, this Pearl Harbor attack on the United States um, draw the United States into World War II, but overall the United States was a, the mainland of the United States uh, was uh, not affected by these two devastating world wars. So it was able to, to grow, to develop, and it also to strengthen its military power because of the, the two world wars because it could sell weapons uh, to, to those fighting countries. And the end of the Cold War also was a huge boost to the United States, both military power and self-confidence. So immediately after uh, the, sec uh, the Cold War, you see the U.S. commentators such as uh, Charles uh, Crosshammer mentioned that America is the only country with the military, uh, diplomatic, political, and economic assets to be a decisive player in any conflict in whatever part of the world it chooses to involve itself. So this guy uh, coined the term the unipolar moment. Um, so that was indeed a unipolar moment. So there is only one uh, pole in the world, which is the United States. And there are other observers talking about America's best days are ahead. And the, that in the 1990s, that was the golden era of the United States um, dominance uh, in the world. Uh, not only military, but uh, also economically. And so along with the expansion of the United States, uh, military power in the world uh, came this uh, US expansion of its business interests uh, around the globe. Uh, for the two examples on the um, graph, the, the Starbucks, and McDonald's, but also other um, fast food outlets, etc. So, as you may wonder, how the U.S. military and U.S. economy are entangled, uh, I'll give you this quote, uh, which is probably less familiar. This actually. Uh, came from U.S. Major General Smedley Butler. He said, I believe in adequate defense at the coastline and nothing else. If a nation uh, comes over here to fight, then we'll fight. The trouble with America is that when the dollar only earns 6% over here, then it gets restless and it goes overseas to get 100%. Then the flag follows the dollar and the soldiers follow the flag. So can you see the, um, the sequence of the US 
global involvement and entanglement. So Thomas Jefferson went and uh, uh, George Washington, they both went against foreign involvement, foreign entanglement. But uh, this quote basically gave you a sense of why this uh, has happened against such advice, because uh, capitalism would not settle for only 6% of profits. It needs to have maximum profits wherever that's possible. So as a result, I think the economic globalization goes hand in hand with the expansion of US military power. So if you look, uh, look at another quote, I think, um, it's quite a frank um, admission that the so-called free trade, the global economic order, is not operated based simply on a kind of an invisible hand of the free market. Um, it is also operated on the basis of the hidden fist. He said, uh, McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonald Douglas, uh, the builder of the fighter F-15. And the hidden fist that uh, has kept the world safe for American business is called the US Army, uh, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps. So US military power, the US national security state, uh, is really indispensable to the expansion, uh, to the domination of US uh, multinationals. And lest we uh, forget, um, there is no such link. And of course, because of the world order is so central to US interests, to US business interests, uh, and to the interest of the political elite. So you understand why there's so much emphasis on building a new world order, on building the US-led rules-based international order, because that order uh, basically always translates into stability for US business, opportunity for US-based multinationals, and profit. So that's why there's a lot of talk about why the, uh, the Iraq wars, um, the first Gulf War, and the, the, then the Iraq war after 9-11, uh, they have always been about oil uh, to get hold of this vital um, resources. Uh, in order for for the yeah for the U.S. economy to uh, to keep running, and that uh, after the the breakout of uh, first Gulf War, uh, George George Bush Senior uh, talked about yeah this is the beginning of the new world order, and um, we know the U.S. Uh, intervention in other places. 
had a similar uh, message to the world uh, to basically um, to stay uh, within your own space. Uh, otherwise, uh, you might be the next target. So this uh, a spate of overseas uh, intervention operations uh, in the 1990s and early uh, 2000s uh, in Kosovo, for example, and uh, in Libya, in Syria, uh, and in in the uh, Middle East uh, more broadly. So it's called, um, of course, those kind of intervention have been named um, as the humanitarian intervention um, and the new approved norm of uh, responsibility to protect uh, or the R2P norm. And the, uh, the United States has been really keen uh, in engaging in nation building to, um, to help transform the world, if you like, um, in uh, the American image. The, the flip side of that is the ironic neglect of order at home. And we have begun to see the consequences of this uh, holding out of the United States itself. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, when these profits, uh, say 20% profit overseas compared to uh, 6% uh, domestically, those companies will move overseas. They, would, they will outsource, they will offshore their production. So as you can see from the out and off, there are um, indication that these are these kind of initiatives taken by American companies, even supported by the American government um, to pursue profits. So as a result, there has been this process of deindustrialization, the creation of the Rust Belt uh, across the vast American hinterland uh, used to be uh, bustling with uh, factories producing everything. Now they are left um, basically abandoned. Uh, this is a picture of um, the industrial city, the auto city, uh, Detroit in Michigan. Um, old factories were basically left in ruins. So that's the manufacturing decline of the United States economy. So the, so the US the economy has been transformed from a manufacturing major power to a, to a service-based uh, economy. Um, there's the increasing financialization of the economy. So the economy does not rely so much on producing, uh, uh, producing things anymore, but rely on this, um, this kind of uh, Wall Street uh, stock market, uh, the financialization of everything so that uh, people could make money out of money, uh, out of speculation, out of the housing market, etc. Uh, 
So they have also have been this infrastructure neglect. Uh, we'll touch on that um, later on as well. The growing inequality uh, in the United States. Um, again, there's something to show you uh, later on. And the middle class, which has been the center of the United States, um, the so-called vital center in American democracy, the size of the middle class has been uh, in decline. And as a result, for many, the American dream is uh, no longer real. And for the first time, the next generation cannot expect to live uh, the same kind of quality of life as their parents' generation. Then you have the mounting social tensions, uh, the Black uh, Lives Matter movement, the rampant uh, gun violence across America. Then within a week, you ha could have 500 um, incidents of uh, mass shooting. And last year, we, we know uh, how the United States uh, had responded to uh, the COVID-19. Um, now, this, it seems that uh, the domestic order is not in very good order, except, I think, um, with the exception of one sector, that's the national security state. Sometimes, yeah, you could also call this the garrison state, uh, where the um, people who specialize in violence, in war, uh, in security, uh, in intelligence, are the most powerful people in that society. So the national security state has been strengthened by the prolonged Cold War, uh, by the endless foreign wars, uh, the United States uh, have been involved in. And this has been warned by uh, U.S. President uh, Eisenhower. Uh, he called this the military industrial complex. And this cartoon shows uh, how the war machine, uh, the national security state uh, has been receiving uh, this kind of physical attention. Um, the budget um, at the expense of other sectors. Yeah, this is the um, um, speech, farewell speech by Eisenhower uh, against the unwarranted power that would be uh, monopolized by the military industrial complex. And his warning has proven to be uh, really uh, prescient uh, because that's exactly what has happened despite his warning. Then you have, um, to give you a, a sense of this uh, vast expense of the national security state, it's not just the national security state, right? it has been globalized. Uh, we often hear about the talk of militarization um, by other countries. Uh, we need to keep that into perspective. This is the militarization of the world by the United States because of uh, its 
holding off about 800 military bases around the world. Uh, some are big uh, in this uh, light yellow color. Some are uh, small, called the lily pad, um, with this kind of a, a, your favorite names. Um, and they are dotted around the world. And why you might wonder? That's because the United States, uh, its military command, it does not see simply uh, the defense of the United States territory itself as its core mission, but its core mission is basically about um, every part of the world. So this, there are seven commands of the US military. The central commands, interestingly, um, is located in the Middle East. Then you have the African, uh, the Europe, the Indo-Pacific, uh, this renamed the Indo-Pacific Command, as well as the, the South America, North America commands. Now, um, yeah, this kind of history uh, probably is more familiar to you, the, the start of the 9-11 and then uh, the war on terror. Because of the US focus on global projection of its power to basically defend everywhere else, ironically, except the US mainland. So this quote, um, so the Pentagon was prepared for any number of contingencies in the Balkans or Northeast Asia or the Persian Gulf. It was just not prepared to address threats to the nation's eastern seaboard. So that's why that whole um, terrorists could struck at the center of the US business, the financial um, hub of New York, the Wall Street. Then that of course started again, um, the global war on terror, again, the focus is on other parts of the world, in Afghanistan and Iraq. The costs of the wars, uh, there's so many uh, different calculations or interpretations. In terms of the casualties, uh, you could see this, uh, how many people uh, have been killed, wounded uh, as a result of those wars, um, much more than the casualties suffered. Uh, on 9-11 itself. And uh, financially, yeah, the Nobel laureate um, wrote to the book, uh, this $3 trillion war, about $3 trillion and maybe counting as well. And importantly, I think uh, we need to see the picture of uh, who have profited from those wars. Uh, those major arms manufacturers, Northrop uh, Grumman, uh, Lockheed Martin, General uh, Dynamics, Raytheon, Boeing, etc., their shares, their stocks, you can see the, how many uh, uh, has increased how many times. And then this is obviously something that would happen 
closer to home when you are not paying attention to your home front, whether it's 9-11 or the global financial crisis. Uh, because of the uh, inequality, as you can see, 1% on about the, how many? Maybe 40% of the US um, wealth and the bottom 40% owns only that one little red dot of the whole wealth. So you have the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, yeah, thank you, Charlie, for the, for the link. <clears throat> then the Rust Belt uh, we mentioned, the backlash uh, against this, this kind of a new liberal uh, international intervention across the world at the expense of domestic uh, constituents at home. So the election of Donald Trump, we uh, don't have the time to, to play his um, speech, but he famously called this is the American carnage. Um, so basically his message is, uh, the United States has paid attention to everywhere, uh, shouldered the responsibility for other countries' defense, but neglected our uh, inner cities, our uh, rusted out factories, and our poor people, um, as if he uh, represented those people, but at least rhetorically, uh, he was successful because he was able to uh, to rally their support and to get into the White House. So um, that's basically this kind of a big contrast uh, between what uh, the national security state uh, has got and the ordinary people has received from the American uh, new liberal globalization. It's uh, very powerful and wealthy multinationals. And then again, uh, COVID-19 came along um, that we all know uh, the United States is still the country which uh, has suffered the most uh, loss of lives in the world, um, which is uh, astonishing given the United States is this most powerful country, most wealthy country in the world. And again, the racial division, as you can see, uh, the people of color suffered the uh, most um, out of this kind of a proportion. Um, the, as a result, uh, because of the inequality. And ironically, even during the COVID-19, the Senate coronavirus bill um, included about uh, 30 billion US dollars for the US military as a response to COVID-19. And um, now that's uh, part of history. And we know Joe Biden uh, was able to defeat Donald Trump to be uh, the new president. And have we seen any major changes? 
from Donald Trump to Biden, probably a lot. But in one core area, we can see this, this strong continuity. The so-called Biden doctrine is basically a doctrine that uh, would continue this kind of competition uh, between the US and China, uh, which started from Donald Trump. So um, why the competition against China has been uh, front and center in the new Biden doctrine. Um, again, we can come back to the US self-identity because I think the rise of China um, in sports, uh, as well as the economy, in military, in technology, has really struck at the core of who the United States think it is. It is number one, and China seems to be able to, uh, China is probably the only country right now to be able to threaten that sense of self-identity. And of course, um, the China threat has been painted as a threat to the international rules-based order, to US global leadership, to democracies and freedom, et cetera, um, or to even civilization, as you can see from the quote of um, uh, a State Department uh, director of policy planning. Um, see, Basically, I think this, um, this has this kind of a racial element even uh, about who dominant the world order. Okay, I think, um, I hope I have managed to give you a, a sense of the US history, who the US is and who they think they are and why things happened the way they happened uh, in the past few uh, decades and why we have come to this, why the competition between the US and China has uh, preoccupied US foreign policy. So uh, next week, we're going to turn to China to see um, the other side of this equation, uh, how China thinks about itself, its history, its future, its goal, and its identity, etc. Okay, um, thank you everyone and um, have a terrific week. Thanks, Chang, you too. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Tao.